younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. This is the opening paragraph to The Great Gatsby, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. In the book, it is said by Nick Haraway, who narrates the story that takes place in 1922, set largely on Long Island. What you just heard was my daughter reading this passage, also on Long Island, 100 years after the events in the book take place. She will be entering high school this year, and undoubtedly, like generations before her, will study this classic book on class in her classroom. And the question we ask ourselves is why? Why does it have this kind of staying power when it was originally a commercial flop? not just upon its release, but all throughout Fitzgerald's lifetime. And why do we believe a book written in 1922 can teach us anything about life in 2022? The Great Gatsby is a tragedy that nonetheless inspires us. Our narrator, Nick Carraway, himself gets carried away with intrigue and awe over Jay Gatsby, a man who seems to epitomize the American dream, but remains elusive. He's achieved great wealth despite meager beginnings, it is yearning for something more. Does the infamous green light he sees and longs for across the water represent fame and money, or respect, love, and belonging? Ultimately, he reaches none of these things. In his quest, he drowns, figuratively and literally. Yet this is still a novel that many read as hopeful and affirming, aided in part by perhaps the most unforgettable last paragraph in American literature. Gatsby believed in the green light the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we be on. Boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And so we beat on, for the next 30 minutes, trying to understand what this book's past can tell us about our current times. This is The Great Gatsby, then and now. I'm Bob McKinnon, the host of the podcast Attribution, and you're listening to The Great Gatsby, Then and Now. This WLIW-FM special program is distributed in partnership with Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from the WNET Group reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash chasing the dream. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund and Sue and Edgar Walkenheim III. Today I'm talking with Maureen Corrigan, book critic for NPR's Fresh Air and the Nikki and Jamie Grant Distinguished Professor of the Practice in Literary Criticism at Georgetown University. Today I'll be talking to Maureen about her fascinating book, so we read on how the great Gatsby came to be and why it endures. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Maureen, I would, I would love it if you could take us back to 100 years ago. Obviously you weren't around, but you're familiar with the time period and, and what it was like um, on Long Island in America at the time in which Fitzgerald first sat down to, to write Great Gatsby. Yeah, well, let's let's telescope out first. America is also recovering from this first pandemic, this 
flu pandemic that had ripped through the world, 1918, 1919. So, and Fitzgerald, you know, was one of the casualties. He contracted the flu, uh, as did, you know, so many people we could tick off in that crowd of writers. And I think there's something about Gatsby, which takes place in 1922, that gives us this sense of a generation that's almost determined to have a good time because the years preceding have been so filled with anxiety and and loss. And you kind of almost, I think, sense that frenetic effort to just forget your troubles and, and drink and party and have a good time. Fitzgerald himself was sort of in a weird place because he had published a second novel, The Beautiful and Damned, about a marriage breaking up. And that's that's kind of interesting. In, in 1922, at which time he and Zelda had only been married two years. And that didn't sell so well. So he was determined to write a third novel that would really sell. But always wedded with the commercialism is Fitzgerald's aspiration to reach for something more. And he writes to his editor, the famous American editor, Maxwell Perkins at Scribner's. He writes to him in in 1922 that he's at work on his third novel and he's trying to write something extraordinary and beautiful and simple and intricately patterned. I mean, it's it's a mess of adjectives that almost don't go together. And yet Gatsby fits all of those descriptions. And he's working on it. He's working on it uh, at White Bear Lake in Minnesota in 1922, where he and Zelda had moved in preparation for the birth of their daughter, Scotty. They decide to leave Minnesota and they hunt for a house after the birth of Scotty. And they find a house in Six Gateway Drive in Great Neck. And Great Neck at that time is a place where a lot of actors and theater people, people in the arts, live. And one of the reasons was it was the only one of the only towns on Long Island that wasn't restricted for Jews. So you get a, people like Eddie Cantor living in, in Great Neck, you know, and it's an easy commute into Manhattan if they're working in the theater. It's It was seen as kind of a looser, more wide-open place. And Scott and Zelda moved to Six Gateway Drive, and he is working hard the first six months that they're there to churn out short stories so that he can clear time to work on this third novel, which he's hoping will be something different, something special. And in fact, it was. You know, so he's he's sitting there in Great Neck, and he sets what many, I, I think yourself, say is the greatest American novel, or certainly yeah. among them. Yeah. And it's interesting that New York City is is like a secondary character in this, and most of what is happening is happening on the island. Yeah. And he creates these, you know, fictional names of West Egg and East Egg to represent real places. And, and that really is a major point of contrast, as well as other places like the heap of ashes and, and, and stuff that's being described. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the sense of place and the contrast that he was probably seeing at that time and, and drawing out? Yeah. Well, you know, I think Fitzgerald is our 
is our greatest American novelist. And I, I also think he's our great novelist about class in America. And he himself is born in 1896. He comes from a background that's a little unsteady. You know, his dad worked in the furniture industry, worked as a salesman, he worked as in the grocery industry, and he's, he's always losing jobs. His mother's family has, as Fitzgerald said, breeding, but not bucks. <laughs> so mm. there was always that sense with him, I think we would call it these days almost an imposter syndrome. He goes for a while to private school. Of course, he goes on to Princeton. But he later tells the novelist John O'Hara that he always felt almost like a counterfeit, that he was always, you know, the scholarship boy, the poor boy in, in those situations. I think he found in Long Island and, of course, Manhattan, one of these great condensed landscapes that allowed him to almost take a tour of the American class system in Gatsby. I'm speaking as somebody who grew up in, in Queens, um, in, in Long Island City, with a view of Manhattan. So I feel like I know that landscape that that he was writing about very intimately. When he's when he's taking us to the Buchanan's house on, on East Egg, which is Sands Point, that's old money. That's those are the people who don't have to worry about who they are. They know who they are. They've they've inherited that sense of themselves and their privilege. And then, of course, where Gatsby is living on West Egg, that's nouveau rich. That's the, the new money. Those are people who may have a lot of money, but they don't have the breeding. And the Valley of Ashes, Corona, which really was the site of an ash dump that Fitzgerald would have driven through on what's Northern Boulevard for anybody who knows that area. You know, those are poor people. Those are people who really don't have maybe a sense of the possibility that the great Gatsby is always celebrated as offering this possibility for upward mobility in America. And then there's New York. You know, people, I hope, remember that scene when Nick and Gatsby are driving into Manhattan for the first time, and they drive on the Queensboro Bridge. And Nick says, you know, the city scene from the Queensboro Bridge is always the city scene for the first time. You know, the sense of anything can happen here, he says, you know, <laughs> even Gatsby could happen. And it must have looked like that. I mean, these, this is the age when the skyscrapers are going up and the city is changing. And right, you have this end of the second great influx of immigrants into the city. And it all seems very much, I don't know, like you're on the tip of the future and, and mm. the novel captures that. It's interesting, in reading your book, I saw that you mentioned Fitzgerald's first words as a child, yeah. which was the word up. And it's a word that appears in the book over 200 times. And you mentioned this idea about the centrality of class in the book. And I'm wondering how much of that was, was probably him working through his own sort of confusion of class, you know, because some people may may read the book and see like he's Nick, but maybe he's actually more Gatsby, right? And so I'm wondering how much he's sort of projecting himself into that or what he's thinking about America yeah. at the time. Yeah. Oh, gosh. He's both. I mean, he's both. He's within and without. Fitzgerald loves this situation and you see it in his short stories a lot someone being in the action and then also standing back and almost watching 
himself and what's going on. I think he's got that insider outsider double consciousness that's characteristic of somebody who doesn't quite feel at home in the role that they find themselves in. So, you know, for Fitzgerald to suddenly reach great success as a writer and be trumpeted as the voice of the jazz age, well, he'll take that, but he also steps back and, and sees where he doesn't quite earn that acclaim that he's gotten so young. I think that This is our great American novel about class. I think you see it on almost every page. But Mm. you see it running through all of Fitzgerald's writing. I I will just say that. You know, one of the things that began to fascinate me at some point in my rereading of Gatsby, and surely I've read the novel over a hundred times by now, but the way it really foregrounds this image of water I mean, you just mentioned up being a word that's in the novel over 200 times. This is such a a tightly written novel, and it's so symbolic and weird. And anybody who read the novel in college, uh, rather high school, will remember, oh, the color symbolism and direction and, you know, all of that. But you get water on almost every page. And I think it's such an apt symbol for a novel in which you have this fear of drowning, this fear of falling, this fear of losing your place in society that permeates that anxiety, that fear permeates almost every page. So, you know, you think about the end of chapter one, the first time Nick sees Gatsby, it's at night and he sees, as he says, his neighbor Gatsby standing out at the edge of his property stretching out his arms toward the green light that we now know is at the end of Daisy's dock. But to stretch out his arms, he's leaning out over the water of, you know, the bay there. And then think about where Gatsby dies. If you reach too far, if you stretch too far, if if you aspire for too much, there's always the danger of falling in, of not making it. And I think it's significant that Gatsby dies in his swimming pool, you know, rather than on his couch, in his car, some any of the other places where Fitzgerald could have staged that death scene. You wrote, actually, I think beautifully in your book, to this point, Fitzgerald's plot may suggest that the American dream is a mirage, but his words make the dream irresistible. Yeah. Gatsby has it both ways. It does. It does. I mean, this is a novel that really asks us not to flatten it into, you know, easy mm. sermons, easy characterizations. The main character is a question mark. You know, who is this guy? You're listening to The Great Gatsby, then and now. This WLIWFM special program is distributed in partnership with Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from the WNET Group, reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash chasing the dream. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation, with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and the Joan Gans Cooney Fund, and Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III. We're talking with Maureen Corrigan, book critic for NPR's Fresh Air, about what she believes is still America's greatest novel on class, 100 years after the book was originally set. Now back to our conversation. I wonder if you can reflect a little bit about how the book is received today. Yeah. I know that you spent some time going back in the classrooms a couple of years ago to hear mm-hmm. how students were seeing it. Are yeah. they seeing it with the same sort of level of 
you know, there's some level of aspiration. They know that there's limits to it. They know that it, the book is tragic, but it is something that is still providing some level of, of inspiration. Yeah. I think my own experience talking to a lot of students, we all still want to believe, you know, we don't believe in that work hard and you will get X as, as an easy formulation, but we want to believe in our own possibility individually. And we want to believe that American society offers us some social mobility. Mm-hmm. This is a great book to read if you want to have that sense of complication of the American mm-hmm. dream. Because as we've already mentioned, it, it keeps saying to us, no, no, don't just buy into, you know, easy myths. Look what Gatsby has to do to make that money <laughs> to get close to days. Right. You know? <laughs> He's got to be a criminal. He's got to be a bootlegger. Yeah. Gatsby comes from Gat, a machine gun. I mean, this is a violent novel, which is why it's still sometimes banned. It's banned for its violence, and it's banned for, of course, the illicit love affair. I think that this is a great novel to read for these times. It seems hard to get a fix on what America is these days. And in a sense, that's what you get at the end of this of Gatsby. Uh, Fitzgerald saying... This guy, or Nick saying, this this man Gatsby, he's yearning for something, and what he's yearning for doesn't even exist anymore. If Nick were looking at Long Island today, mm. and you know there are presumably many Gatsby figures who have $60, $70 million homes on the island, there are still parts of the island where more than 20% of the population is living in poverty, uh, 80% of children are getting subsidized lunches. How much of it still holds true? Would it be more cynical? Would it be still sort of the ability to sort of accept excess because of the presumption of work, even if others are not having the same level of of mobility or success? Yeah. I think Nick slash Fitzgerald would be appalled at the excess. I mean, somehow it seems... um, I guess because of celebrity culture, which Fitzgerald helped create, we know so much more <laughs> about what mm. what that tiny slice of American culture has. And I think, I hope they would be appalled by it and revolted by it. I think, like most of us, they would be depressed by the fact that there hasn't been some great social sea change where we don't have yeah kids getting subsidized lunches we don't have an education system that doesn't really help people achieve or even formulate their dreams there's not this commitment as a society to public education and to moving everybody forward giving everybody a chance i think that would be a disappointment not only for nick and and Fitzgerald, but also for a lot of the readers of, of this novel. You know, one of the things that sort of strikes me and now reflecting on what you're just saying is that others would assume that the jazz age was a point of being carefree. Yeah. But what is absent is just the idea of caring, yes. you know, for each other and people yes. of different classes and stuff like that. And I wonder, because I think now when we think about class today, we think of people who are maliciously taking advantage of others, which Mm. may be true, or maybe they're just sort of careless about what their actions may do for those around or beneath them. 
I like the way you've underscored the difference between those two words. Right, Fitzgerald had a choice. He could have used the word carefree <laughs> over and over again. But, but there is a moral judgment that Nick is applying when he calls Tom and Daisy careless people. To be careless is to not take that social responsibility for others, to not recognize it at all, to not recognize that interconnectedness. You know, you asked about today's society. I guess as someone who grew up in a union household in Queens, I see some hope in the way the labor movement seems to have been resuscitated lately and young people really getting involved in unions. That's a way of recognizing a common goal and responsibility to others, that it's not all just about you, you, you getting your raise and moving forward. You mentioned this idea of Gatsby being banned in some schools for mm -hmm. the reasons you mentioned, but you know, it seemed to me that it's actually sort of brooked the storm a little bit better than some of our other classic American novels because it's lack of real attention to race. Yeah. So you mentioned that some of the other candidates for greatest American novel historically have been To Kill a Mockingbird or Huck Finn, and, mm -hmm. and those books are under maybe more intense scrutiny because of the language in which they're using or how race is being dealt with, even though race is so central to the American question. Mm -hmm. And so because Gatsby doesn't really deal with it that much, it doesn't right. have to answer those kinds of questions. And I don't know whether people today see that as a flaw in the book, that it sort of ignores this question mm -hmm. or whether it wasn't much of a question when he wrote it. But I'm wondering if you could just sort of reflect on how the book handles yeah. or, or doesn't handle the question of race. Yeah, it's an issue. You know, it's an issue because of its absence. You know, you get commentary on somebody like Meyer Wolfsheim for being a Jew. You know, mm. you, you get the anxiety about the immigrants pouring in from Central and Southeastern Europe. And again, it, you just have to think about that scene of Nick and Gatsby going over the Queensboro Bridge. They're passed by a car described as being driven by a white chauffeur and the passengers are quote unquote two bucks and a girl and then the other car is a funeral cortege in which immigrants from southeastern europe are in the car you know it's a wonderful anxious image of the gatsby's car being surpassed on the bridge mm. left in the dust by these others but mm. that's one of the few times you get a glimpse of people you know, who aren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in, in this novel. I think my students see it as a deficit. I think, you know, these days we're almost conditioned to maybe rightfully expect that every American novel is going to engage the great dilemma, to put it mildly, of race in this country. So I, I can't make that case for Fitzgerald as being particularly alert to race. And whether it's a real flaw or not, that wasn't his subject. His subject was class. Like how much do you think the areas in the book in Queens and Long Island own the novel? Do they sort of see it? Do they reflect on it in a way that's sort of unique to how others might approach it? I don't think, except for kind of, in my view, silly stuff like Gatsby parties. I don't really see Long Island owning this novel or even particularly New York owning this novel and saying, well, this is a New York novel. And yet 
when I find when the penny dropped in, and I finally realized, oh my God, I grew up in this novel. You know, I grew up in this landscape, and and a lot of it is still there. It so resonated with me that idea of you're in one place. In my case, Long Island City, and that was before all the high rises that have you know sprung up in Long Island City. You're in that place. And you're looking at this wonderland, you know, and it's, it's over the bridge, it's out of reach, but it's, it's there for you on the horizon. And for me, I immediately got what Fitzgerald was talking about when he said the city seen from the Queensboro Bridge is always the city seen for the first time. You know, it just looks unreal. As you know, you can... St- drive through those places in Queens where it looks like abandoned hope, all ye who enter here. It just seems like, you know, you've got the old apartment houses and people sitting out in the street in beach chairs still and sort of just listless. That's there too. So the Valley of Ashes may have been cleaned up and turned into the, you know, successive World's Fair grounds and everything else, but those sites are there too. It's the compactness of that geographical landscape that I think Fitzgerald saw and said, oh, I I can take advantage of this. There are so many different levels of American society, so many different classes compacted shoulder to shoulder in Manhattan and and Queens and and Long Island. And I, I can work with that. Obviously he died tragically young. And so it's not like he had an ability to really look back upon, you know, his greatest novel, although it wasn't probably seen that way in his lifetime. But as you mentioned before, he too was a person that was struggling with sort of imposter syndrome. He was drawn to the lavishness himself and the parties. I mean, so he was himself probably conflicted inside of his own work. And I wonder how he, or, or maybe, you know, you, you, I think you've met with his daughter or other family members, like how they reflected upon his own relationship to this novel. Yeah. Well, as you know, the novel didn't sell well when it came out. And basically the second printing of the first edition, there were so many copies just moldering in Scribner's warehouse by the time Fitzgerald died in 1940. So it was really a flop in terms of being the big novel that would sell so many copies. And I think that Fitzgerald knew what he had achieved in Gatsby. And I think it broke his heart that it wasn't received in any way commensurate (laughs) to the achievement that, that he had managed to pull off. Now, I assume, you know, the last words of the great Gatsby by heart, and I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, recite them and, and share what they mean to you and why they resonate today. Yeah. The last words are, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And the first part of that sentence is all about trying, reaching, aspiring. And the second part of the sentence is about the inevitability of never quite reaching (laughs) what you're aspiring to. I think today, to be glib, I think they're, they're more relevant than ever. As a few political commentators who I follow have said in various words, you know, the American experiment has never been achieved. So even though we may feel these days that we're at a particularly dangerous point 
when it comes to American democracy and what kind of society we're going to have in, in the coming years. We have to remember it's never been achieved and we always have to keep aspiring, keep trying, keep working, keep reaching for this dream of a democratic society where everybody gets a fair shot. I think if you want to take those, that last line in, in that social way that Gatsby is, is a line that everybody should commit to memory these days in America. Thank you for listening to Great Gatsby Then and Now, a WLIW-FM special program distributed in partnership with Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from the WNET Group reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash chasing the dream. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund and Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III. The show was a production of Moving Up and was edited by Luke Robert Mason. The music is by Johnny Most Davis. The jazz recording you're listening to now was composed by Chris Walden. I'm Bob McKinnon, your host of this program and of the podcast Attribution. Thank you to Maureen Corrigan for her valuable insight and of course F. Scott Fitzgerald for this novel that was the focus of today's discussion. A special thanks to my daughter, Carlin McKinnon, for her reading that opened this show. Our final credit goes to you, the listener, for all who beat on boats against the current, yearning, striving, reaching for a better life. Whether or not you reach your green light, I hope you find the time to appreciate the journey. <laughs>